My guest today is film producer Miles David Romney and as CEO of V42 Venture Studio Fund, and he then built the largest network of influencer media promoters, built consumer streaming experiences that powered ESPN, DirecTV, EA, even Blizzard, and a managing partner of six-time Tony-winning Broadway producer, 42nd Club, which is responsible for Moulin Rouge, Hadestown, and Beetlejuice. He then built Radiant Media, to a 50-time revenue increase operating over 1,500 TV, radio, and newspaper properties, then sold to GTN. But he is the founder of Mast Media Accelerator, whose first animated film, 95 Senses, is critically acclaimed and is Oscar-nominated for 2024. This animated short film marks Jared and Jerusa Hess's first foray into animation, so how's that for the creators of Napoleon Dynamite? Let's welcome producer Miles Romney and the Oscar-nominated animated short, 95 Senses, to the show. Welcome, Miles. Well, thank you so much, Ward. It is a pleasure and honor to be here. Well, uh, and thank you for the, uh, the terrific introduction. Well, I had to shorten it because your resume is extremely long. <laughs> it's a... Uh, I, I've always said that variety is the spice of life. It is. Well, how did you get into producing 95 Senses? Yeah, it really came out of... Um, so I I have been an animator since I was a teenager. Uh, I um, One of my first ventures as an entrepreneur was, uh, was an animation studio called uh, Dream Seeker Studios. And we were we were the last ones, in fact, to work directly with Art Clokey, the legendary creator of Gumby uh, on Gumby content before before he passed away. Uh, and uh, in those early days, in fact, I remember that one of my marks of uh, of uh, of honor was a cease and desist that we got from Will Vinton Studios in those days. Now they're like a studios uh, because we had developed a technology called a digiclamation, we were calling it. Uh, but they claimed a, a copyright infringement. So we changed it uh, very cheerfully to DigiClay animation and did a lot of the early work in the, in digitally rendered uh, animation that was made to look like a clay animation. We developed techniques for programmatically moving thumbprints on the surfaces and, and distorting the geometry uh, very, uh, very subtly to make it look like it was clay animated, um, matching, uh, matching the, 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 the frame rates um, and movement patterns that you typically see in stop motion. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, and, and from there, I started working more in uh, in live action and just took took the the executive path primarily from there. Uh, built a, a media company at Radiate Media, as you mentioned, uh, was running a, running a whole lot of media properties when we sold it. Um, uh, was a, a producer on some documentaries, then ran. Uh, ran the uh, the distributor Yekra, which was uh, very technology enabled, and we built a new model for independent filmmakers for being able to push out indie film through uh, our network of thousands of tastemakers. And we we set some great records at that time for revenue generated through indie films released uh, on the web. Uh, so I ended up taking more of the the uh, the executive path, and um, then when I left the film distributor. I, uh, I, I wanted, I was looking for some other way to really enable indie filmmakers. 
and I was a, an advisor to the Salt Lake Film Society at the time. Tori Baker is the, the visionary CEO over there. And for a few years, we just started bouncing ideas back and forth about what we might do for uh, the independent film community and also to, to allow filmmakers, regional filmmakers, uh, starting with Salt Lake City, which is where Salt Lake Film Society is based, uh, to, to stay where they are and to tell stories that are, are local to their own experiences in their own regions uh, to really contribute to a greater diversity uh, of stories being told nationwide without everything kind of being told through the lenses of New York and LA. So we started MAST with that intent, with the intent uh, of building a fellowship program, which we did, uh, f selecting fellows to come into the program, to be mentored. We connect them with mentors in the industry, help them sell their work into the industry, uh, give them grant money to, to finish their own projects, and then also work on collaborative projects that MAST orchestrates. And uh, the, the first one of those is 95 Senses. Uh, and that, that has been a, a fascinating process. We started it with a worldwide contest and had uh, thousands of submissions uh, from animators uh, the world over. We also scoured YouTube and Behance and other online platforms looking for, for promising talent that hadn't landed at a, at a major studio or animation studio and invited them to, uh, to submit. And in the end, we picked this just beautiful team of, uh, of six winners. And from there, knew that we had to write a script and build a project around six totally different animation styles. Because another aspect of this that was really important to us was letting each one of those animators show his or her work up on the screen. We didn't just want to take them all and uh, normalize them and put their technical talents into the service of one person's visual vision. Uh, we, we wanted each one of them to bring a, a unique aesthetic and to highlight all of those on the screen. And uh, so it, then at that point, I went to longtime friends, Hubble Palmer and, uh, and Chris Bowman, and uh, who are very talented screenwriters and said, guys, here's what I've got. I've got six teams of animators, each with uh, a unique aesthetic. I need a story that can make sense of this, that can really highlight it and make narrative, um, uh, it, it not, just a, not just kind of work around this, but really build in a narrative reason for it. And they brought back the beautiful script, um, which in its first draft was called My Five Senses because it centers on uh, the the story told by the the the, uh, the character Koi through his his memories and his five senses, and uh, then at that point went to uh, to Jerusha and Jared Hess who had worked with uh, Hubble and Chris on several projects previously, and uh, who also had been friends and supporters of the Film Society and and I actually did a, a short film years ago with uh, with Jared, and uh, they were on board. They love the idea. They love the idea of coming on and mentoring animators, bringing them together as a cohesive whole, bringing uh, their real talent for uh, narrative arc and making every story uh, personal. Clearly, this project was a, a, a different flavor than what they had done in the past, which is an, another aspect of it that I think really appealed to them. They got to dive into something that had some laughs in it, but also at its core is a very thoughtful drama 
and uh, and and an, an animation. And they're doing a lot of work in animation now. They have a Netflix uh, animated movie called Thelma and the Unicorn coming out in, uh, in a few months here, and uh, some other projects in the works. Um, as Jerusha says, animation is really feeling like home to them at this point. Uh, and I, I, I'm thrilled that 95 Senses and Mast uh, could be part of that uh, transition for them into this, uh, this new medium. But in the end, we ended up with a fantastic group of animators, great, uh, great screenwriters, uh, incredible directors, and, um, and, and we made it happen. I, I, I could tell you a lot more about the technicalities of, of how that happened, particularly because COVID hit us in the middle of production. And uh, we had to make some changes to the way that we were producing, of course. Um, but one of the advantage, well, I won't say, that animation was able to carry forward in a better way than live action production was during COVID because so much of that can be done uh, remotely in a distributed way. Uh, so it didn't stop us. It did slow us down a little bit, gave us, uh, introduced a few weird delays, but, uh, but we carried forward through it. And then uh, on the other side of it, hit the, hit the festival circuit hard. Well, you know, I loved the short film 95 Senses. It's one of the very oh, few you. films this Oscar season that left me with that long lingering thought about the importance of life around us. Yeah, okay. here is this incredible, incredible story. I and when I talked to Jerusha, I love the fact that you had six different animators on this film. Each one of their own designs and animation flowed so well together in telling the story that as you're watching the film, it's not chopped up in any way. It just it flows with with such a grace that. And it's funny. So you have a lot of your senses paying attention to what Koi is saying and, and, and telling that story. Then your eyes are seeing the different forms of animation, but it's not registering to the audience that they're actually noticing the variations of animation. So it, it worked so beautifully in this film uh, but for you, when it came to the story of Koi, what interested you the most about it? It was the redemption arc. Uh, I love and kind of a, a principle of um, of my work in this industry has a, a really foundational principle has always been um, what I call spinach in the popcorn. Uh, I don't. I don't like to tell preachy stories. I don't like people to feel like they're coming in and they're being pointed along one particular ideological or political or, or, or philosophical path. Uh, I like it first and foremost to be good entertainment that people love to sit down and watch. But then I, I always insist that we put some element in there that sends people away thinking about the film and thinking about the idea or hours or days or weeks afterwards. That's the mark of success in my mind, where people can sit there for the duration of the film and feel like they've been entertained, but then go away thinking about it for a long time afterwards. And the way that Chris and Hubble constructed this story is so beautiful because it is, it is all about, um, 
it, it, it's tragic, but is it, it, but there's a hope in the midst of the tragedy. Uh, and this emerged really from the, the, the extensive research that they did on death row inmates. They, they watched uh, hours and hours of footage of interviews with death row inmates who were on their way to execution in the Texas Huntsville unit and came to identify several common character traits uh, that then they built into Koi as a pastiche. Uh, for example, they, they often are expressing, particularly after having had years and years to think about it, they typically are expressing remorse uh, for, uh, for what they did um, to a greater or lesser degree are, are, are taking responsibility for it. Very often also dreaming of the lives that they could have had if they hadn't made those mistakes. And then uh, also, and this is the quirkiest one that comes out in such a charming way in Koi, they, of, they often have a, a kind of uh, erudition, which is unexpected because they've been in prison with nothing else to do but read. So you do end up with um, some kind of know-it-alls, in some case, kind of charmingly uh, uh, insufferable know-it-alls. And that comes out in Koi, where he's using, he's using big words and talking about, um, talking about concepts like uh, the changing shape of eyeballs, uh, because of the use of mobile devices in young people, um, bringing out and even even his his call out to uh, to ninety five senses, uh, which which is another concept that came from his reading and ended up being the title. His uh, his note his his talking about the notion that after we die, it could be that uh, that we have an expansion of our sensory input and that it could be that we don't have five senses anymore, but we have 95 senses. Um, and, uh, or you see what again, I loved about that miles is when Coy mentioned that, you know, maybe we have 95 senses and he's talking about the afterlife, but the way that yeah. Coy describes it, I sat there and I was like, you know, he's visualizing eternity in a beautiful way not in hellfire because he'd been to prison you know a lot of people ask me well you know criminals go to heaven i said well yeah because one of the ones that hung on the side of jesus went with him and so right. there is redemption and for coy to be in prison and i told jerusa this because i was i was astonished because in the film coy mentions Lake Conroe. And uh -huh. I I only live five to ten miles from Lake Conroe. Uh, do you really? Yes. And so <laughs> and then so with Huntsville, Texas, you know, a lot of people think that that's where all the death row inmates are housed. Well, it they're they're usually housed in a unit in Livingston, Texas. And then yeah. when that day comes or those three days prior, then they're driven from there to Huntsville for that day. And uh. So when you said Huntsville, I because I told Teresa, I was like, yeah, Huntsville. Because if you mention Lake Conroe, the only place close enough for prison is going to be Huntsville. And so it was, so I, I understood that. But there to have Koi. Well, you, you bring a lot more contextual knowledge to it than most of the viewers do. So that I'm glad, I'm glad that it rings true for you as well. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, when, when he, when he mentioned the 95 senses, I thought this is the, and, and it, that was the beautiful part, because for me, 
he was envisioning eternity as being this incredible, awesome place. And that's what I, I, I wish for everyone. But he is within those four walls for, year, for his whole life. But he still envisioned something beautiful when that day came. And I thought that was one of the most, for me, most amazing parts of this story. It, it is for us as well. And it, it's what also, in my mind, makes it so accessible as a uh, conversation starter. It doesn't, uh, because again, it's not, it's not preachy. It's not coming in. And uh, you could say that it's a, it's a film that has, uh, that, that has a lot to do with the death penalty and incarceration. Uh, and there, and those are things that in the future, I think we'll really want to delve into and explore as aspects of the film. Uh, though right now we're, we're really focusing on it as a, a piece of art with the themes of, uh, of redemption and hope in the face of, uh, of travail. Uh, but the beautiful aspect of it is that it can be viewed on both of those levels. Uh, and that you, you'll watch it and come away not thinking, okay, I, 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 I now should have a particular uh, activation when it comes to the political issue of, uh, of the death penalty, but rather it gives you a, a sense that uh, maybe you should just think about it. Maybe you had never thought about it before and now just give it some thought. And in my mind, that is the best way the only effective way to approach any of the really sticky wickets uh, that we face as a society. When we try to approach any of these difficult problems from predefined extreme partisan positions, it becomes nearly impossible to define uh, any kind of a middle ground go forward approach. But if instead we're all approaching them with open-minded empathy and our only conviction is a conviction uh, of listening and then thinking and understanding and then and then bringing our personal conclusions to bear that's not that's not to say that uh, that then opinions won't differ and people will want to defend them strongly but if we can always start from a position of empathy that's how we build solutions and that's what our political climate uh, and and even social climate today in my mind, is missing so extremely is that is, starting place. It's empathy. lacking empathy. And you brought up something early and you brought up, up claymation and you brought up Gumby. Yeah. When you were, when you were saying that when I was, a, when I was growing up as a kid, I remember all the episodes of Gumby, but I remember David and Goliath even more because it was on like public television. Yeah. And, <laughs> and like, 95 senses is not preachy whatsoever, but neither was David and Goliath. So you had a boy no. and his dog. There was always a lesson to be learned, but it wasn't shoving it into your face. And when I saw 95 senses, it almost reminded me of that same tone of teaching that David and Goliath brought to so many kids across the country back in the day. That's why this film is so beautiful. Yeah, I'm glad. Yeah, I'm glad that it makes that callback for you. I think that's that's just the emotional tone that we're going for. And you know, with the six animators, they must have had a really great time working on this project because um, 
how did the animation actually work? Because did uh, Tim Blake Nelson did he did he voice his parts prior or was it after? And yeah. so because with the animators, they were actually their animation is diving into Koi's past. Yeah. Uh-huh. And what's uh what's fascinating is uh so we I think from day one well Chris and Hubble will tell you that uh, that as they were writing the script, they heard the voice of Tim Blake Nelson. He was their muse. And uh, it was a fantastic coincidence that when Jared and Jerusha came on, well, either a coincidence or extremely effective imbuing of Tim Blake Nelson's personality into the actual uh, writing of the script, because they looked at it and they said, oh, this has got to be Tim Blake Nelson. Uh, and, uh, and, and, uh, and they made a call to Tim. We went out to dinner with him. Uh, he and his wife, Lisa, such lovely uh, people. So incredibly talented, uh, both in their own rights, Tim on the screen, Lisa on stage, teaches at Columbia, teaches acting at Columbia. And, uh, Tim uh, was so complimentary of the Hesses said that Napoleon Dynamite uh, was one of the most important, uh, uh artistic filmic properties in his household and that he'd always wanted to work with the Hesses. And, uh, and so then we, we, uh, we took the script and Tim and went right into the recording studio in New York and he laid it down and Jared and Jerusha uh, gave him some direction in that process. But for the most part, he, he came having very deeply, uh, thought it out. Uh, he's from that, uh, that region of the country. So, there, there are cultural references that, that really resonated with him as well. And uh, then we, 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 uh, we cut together that track and gave it to the animators. And then Jared and Jerusha could work with each of the animators with the narration already in place. Um, but another unique aspect of the script is it, it was written deliberately, again, by Chris and Hubble, without mise-en-scene, without... without uh, in, um, uh, environmental or action instructions without really any information on what the animators should be depicting under the voiceover. And uh, Jared and Jerusha were, uh, were, were they, they bought into that immediately and gave each of the, uh, the animators the freedom to, to, to bring their own ideas to the table on what they wanted to depict. Sometimes, uh, sometimes that ended up being a, um, fairly, uh, <clears throat> Uh, fairly literal in the case, for example, of what uh, Jared Matthews and Dallin Penman did in the uh, the, the the smell section uh, that has more of the Disney feel. Uh, and that incidentally, uh, Jared Matthews uh, subsequently landed a gig with Disney, uh, which is which is fantastic. Which is the purpose of the film, right? To highlight the talents of these animators and help them uh, as as an entree into the industry or helping them expand uh, the the nascent careers that they'd already built. Uh, it, it, but even in that case, uh, where it is more literal, one of the most, one of the two most striking, uh, I would say two or three most striking moments in the film is when uh, grandma turns around uh, to her grandson who had stolen a Reader's Digest and, uh, and hits him with it and berates him for having stolen it when he had done it innocently just because he wanted to memorize the jokes. Uh, and then they pull out into a more deconstructed uh, figurative aesthetic. And it, it's very powerful because of it, because they had stuck more 
uh, with the literal pro programmatic uh, visual approach and then pulled out into a moment of more abstraction. It makes it really powerful. Then you have um, people like Nika Harrison um, who, uh, with, uh, with Scott uh, McHenry, who did the, um, <clears throat> the site section that was so beautifully abstract. Though some of it is literal, she talks about Lake Conroe and and uh, and snorkeling, and then you'll see koi there snorkeling. Um, but then it goes into more fanciful depictions of the turtles and the fish, and uh, it, it's beautiful that way. And it highlights one of the real powers of animation. Also, is that it can just move fluidly out of literalism and figurative and and, uh, and a figurative approach to trigger. Uh, the most effective emotional response in watching them. And in the best animations, you'll see them just move fluidly in and out. And audiences oftentimes won't even realize that it's happening. Um, and, 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 that was managed, uh, and that was managed beautifully. Uh, when, then uh, Casey Toby, who did, he did the taste section, that, uh, that was, he took a more literal approach there. Um, but again, it also was a fanciful approach because he came to the table and said, yeah, I could just be showing Koi in prison, getting his prison food, but why don't we, why don't we put him in a five-star restaurant while he's telling this story? Uh, and then the Hesses said, yeah, and you know, there can be that real key moment, uh, when the, when the, the, uh, the bun's being put on the burger and then the colors all change and everyone's uniforms change to prison uniforms and we see that they're actually in prison. And that ended up being a really powerful moment. Too. It was Again, bringing in a figurative element uh, with the literal and the point at which uh, it switches from one to the other is an emotional catch point. Yeah. When, I, then, when the uh, grandmother, you know, when the grandmother yelled at young Coy, I mean, you felt it, you felt not, you, you felt, being on the end of her anger. I mean, I yeah. felt sorry for Koi and it was almost like she was yelling at you. I mean, when you watched it and then you're right. When it came to the tasting scenes, when Koi's explaining and then, then you see that turn, like you said in the animation from a five star, all of a sudden it's really the prison kitchen. And I was yeah. like, wow. Cause my first thought was, I didn't know that because I knew that a lot of the facts were based on truth. So I was like, man, this is, this is just incredible. But I have to ask you because one thing I've never understood because with short films, it, it gets, you know, I've talked to so many directors and it's very, very tough in the editing process, but with an animated short, you have six animators. How do you edit that? How much footage or animation does each animator bring that when the story is put together, how do you edit that? Especially when you're looking yeah. at, a, at a particular time limit for to be classified as a short film. Yeah. So in this case, fortunately, we didn't, we didn't have to worry too much about the time limit because we have all the way up to 40 minutes. Uh, so, so we had a, a lot of latitude there. So we just knew that the, the, the edit just needed to be as narratively and aesthetically impactful as it could be. And with animation, um, particularly, you really don't want to overproduce. You don't want to, you don't want to get coverage. 
uh, like you would get in a live action uh, production. You, you really don't want to show up to the editor giving him too many choices because it means that you've spent a lot of time and money uh, animating frames that, uh, particularly with hand animation, uh, the way that this was done, it, it, it uh, you end up you can end up spending twice as much uh, on the budget as you needed to. So uh, it, it, it's much more common with animation to come to it with a very uh, detailed and and authoritative, almost locked storyboards so that the animators are doing every shot um, at, as they see it in the storyboards, knowing that that's where it's gonna fit in. And a very important part of the process is generating what's called an animatic uh, early on, where we take uh, the, the voiceover, add some sound design to it, uh, take our uh, storyboards, cut them up, do a little, a little very rough animation, get it all into sequence, so that um, so that the directors uh, can really get a sense for the pacing, and then at that point make their suggestions and tweaks on the pacing, so that you you end up with a pretty close to finished product in terms of its length, pacing, arc before the animators go in to start doing the frame by frame animation. Uh, that said, we did end up cutting about forty seconds uh, at the end where when we saw it all together, uh, it, uh, it was clear that there were a couple of moments that just didn't need to be there. Uh, they lengthened uh, maybe an emotional anticipation a little longer than was optimal in order to get the, the payoff um, that, uh, that, that we all were really looking for. Um, but yeah, for the most part, it, it's, uh, it's almost pre-edited. Wow. Now, what was it like when the Oscar nominations were announced and what was the day like for the whole team on 95 Senses? Yeah, it was an amazing thing. Because um, you, you go into something like this and, um, and you never really know what the reception is going to be. Um, I always had high hopes. In fact, some others on the team were uh, kind of chuckling at me because um, when I uh, when I brought when I brought Chris and Hubble onto the project, I said, "Guys, we're not doing this on a lark. We've got fantastic animators here. We're looking to build an accelerator uh, that can make many films into the future." Uh, I I'm looking I'm looking for a script that could win an Oscar. And, uh, and they came back with that story. And then uh, with the Hesses, um, I, I said, guys, I, you know, we're resourcing this uh, such that um, and, and, and we're planning ahead so that we're going to be able to run a campaign when that time comes. And we're going to hit the festival circuit really hard. Uh, we, are, we are treating this as though we will arrive on the Oscars shortlist. That's as, that's as far as I went. I said, guys, let's get this thing onto the Oscars shortlist. And if we can get onto the shortlist, then we can have proven the model and we, we will know that we've built uh, a, a pipeline model, a talent discovery system here that is sustainable and that we can use over and over again. So we were ecstatic when we got onto the shortlist. And then uh, 
I gathered the whole team together on a, on a Google Meet uh, at 5.30 a.m. Pacific time to watch the nomination announcements. And at that point, we were, we were really hopeful and we'd had some very generous and, and beautiful shout outs from uh, Taika Waititi and Jack Black uh, and uh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller and Chris Williams. Uh, uh, so, so the attention was all, it had all given us really great momentum and people who, who know this space um, and who know, and, and Ed Catmull gave us a fantastic shout out, a, a co-founder of Pixar and a former president of Disney Animation Studios, um, called it a beautiful film and said he loved it. So we had, we had a lot of luminaries who it was really resonating with and that, that took us, so we felt the momentum. Uh, but even so, you, you just, you just never know. And there, there are films that we thought were shoe ins for the nominations that didn't end up making them. And, uh, and we were, we were really disappointed to see that, but yeah, when we were all sitting there early in the morning and, uh, and our, our name was the second one listed, um, it just, you know, you can't quite predict how that's going to how your brain's going to react. It and, proved, uh, then, but like you said, it proved your model. So let's, so what does an Oscar nomination or even an Oscar win mean to a production company? Yeah, it, it, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, it's bona fides. It means that, um, that, that we know what we're doing at this point, we could do it at least once. There's a chance that we can replicate it. And it means even more in this case because we have uh, a, a distinctive model. Um, and so for, uh, for MAST, um, now we can go out because it's a, it's a 501c3, it's a nonprofit. Uh, now we can go out to fundraisers and say, look at the differences that we have made in these, uh, in these, uh, animators lives by giving them this feather in the cap. They now have been animators on an Oscar nominated film, uh, which is a big deal for their careers which means we, we, we will be able to more sustainably fundraise around this program, which lets us produce our next film with our next cohort of animators and our next one and our one after that. Uh, at the same time, we, have to, we now have to start uh, continuing to be really creative because we can't aesthetically do the same thing over and over again. So next year's film is not, uh, it's not going to be that it's going to be multiple animators. It's going to rep represent several visual styles, but not in the way that this one did. Uh, it, 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 um, it'll be beautiful to watch and it'll be, uh, and it'll be unique in the field, uh, but it will be different than this one. And then the year after that, we have to, we have to come up with a way of doing something, uh, uh, different again. Uh, so I, uh, every year's film absolutely won't be aesthetically built along the same model. Um, but we do plan to carry forward our discovery process of finding new talented animators, bringing them into the project, pairing them uh, with mentors that really help them understand a professional animation pipeline and be part of producing a cohesive piece that then goes on to the festival circuit and, uh, and maybe, maybe rises to the level uh, of this one. Of course, there's always the, the kind of superstitious danger uh, that, that having done so well on the first one, it's, it's, you know, there's nowhere to go, but downhill. Uh, but I am, uh, I am 
an incurable optimist, and I see this as uh, an indication that we hit upon a really great model for producing short animation, and and we're going to carry it forward. And you short are. the short form the short form is so important because this is where indie still really lives. This is where the the little film that could stories uh, almost always come from every year. Uh, and it also it is an experimental uh, medium where you can see things both visually and um, and and tonally that are, are harder to commit to on a higher budget feature length piece. Um, though sometimes, you know, like the Spider-Verse films were incredibly innovative in their aesthetic styles and because of their multiverse approach, even in the way they approach characters, showing different versions of the same character. So they, they managed to do something in my mind that um, it, it is groundbreaking and probably the most significant move in animation that we've seen uh, in a decade or two. So it was uh, a, a huge honor when, uh, when Phil Lord and Chris Miller hosted one of our, uh, one of our four-year consideration screenings. And Phil Lord, in fact, quipped he said, uh, it took us a whole feature film to get this many aesthetics uh, in, and you guys managed to do it in 13 minutes. <laughs> well, can the public see 95 Senses now? Yeah. If you just go to 95senses.org, all one word, then there's a link off there to our distributor, Documentary Plus. Uh, Documentary Plus, typically they buy documentaries, but they saw this as being so additive to uh, to a lot of their doc their, their nonfiction content, and because it was based on a pastiche of, uh, of of real people, they were very enthusiastic about it and have been a great support. Also, we're included in the Oscar Shorts program uh, that's going on to seven hundred some odd screens uh, on February sixteenth. So go to your local cinema and you can see all five of the short animated nominees. Uh, wow. Ladies and gentlemen, head over to 95senses.org. You've got to see one of the best animated short films ever, and it rightly deserves its Oscar nomination. And Miles, good luck at the 96th Academy Awards for you and the whole team. We're going to be cheering you on. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate that. You bet. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, again, head over to 95senses.org. Check out this amazing animated short film. And to think that this is their first foray into animation, I can tell you one thing. I can't wait to see what else they're going to produce year after year, pushing the envelope of animation and storytelling. These are the ones to watch. So, ladies and gentlemen, the beauty of this film, 95 Senses, cannot be overlooked. Academy members, this deserves your vote. And as for my viewers and listeners, don't ignore the power of your five senses. Look up. See, see past your smartphone. Walk in the forest or a garden and smell nature. Give a gentle touch to someone who needs some encouragement. And there is also a culinary world out there waiting on you to explore. So ladies and gentlemen, you can catch all of the replays of our interviews with top film directors and producers screenwriters, actors, and more on our website at bondoncinema.com. And we're also available on YouTube and a dozen audio platforms as well. Thank you for watching and listening. And as for me, I'll see you from the red carpet.